We've been recorded. We've been digitized. We've been uploaded. We've been downloaded. We're on your favorite digital device. Coming to you live and delayed from the Waldorf Room high above the Coot Street Motel 6. It's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. You just never tell me when you're going to do these things. You're never going <laughs> to. This is completely now we're in Detroit. <laughs> No, I didn't say Detroit. It sounded like Detroit. <laughs> what I said, what, what bankrupt? Well, uh, well, maybe. on the verge of closure. Well, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, abandoned. Like like the Coot Street podcast, you can hear the well, wind sort of. Go, do, do you know, speaking of Detroit, I mean, this this is a phrase which has been going around a lot in in, in media. Uh, what is it? Uh, a ruin porn or something like that. Oh yeah. Uh, there are all these photographs of oh, yes. uh, of, of apocalyptic, but they're complete post-apocalyptic landscapes ready-made. Yes. I mean they're there. They're in Detroit. They're all over Ohio. They're in Pennsylvania, and pe- and the people are selling art books of yes. ruined factories and abandoned schools and things. I think is that related in some way to the whole Hunger Games. Um, Who knows? I mean, the fact that, that, that you know you, you feel like an apocalyptic scenario because you live in one? Uh, it could be. I mean, I was listening to an NPR money podcast this morning, and they're talking about uh-huh. some 12, uh, 14-year-old kid in Florida who's buying houses because they're so cheap over there right now. You know, like $12,000 for a house. That's true. Which is insane. But... but the, uh, I wonder, though, if this is... I mean, it, sometimes when we look at a science fiction theme, which are, might might have been familiar to us for decades, um, the post-apocalyptic rural uh, Arcadia rebuilding civilization theme, uh, there's a there's a new TV series here in the states which may or may not have made it there called Revolution. I've heard of it but not seen it. Um, hearing, hearing hearing of it is about where you want to be, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's. It, a lot of the material from it is uh, is is just drawn from the post-apocalyptic novels of the 50s. I was thinking about this because um, somebody, actually Paul DeFilippo, was writing yes. a very small review of this 1950s uh, thing and, and mentioned the Lee Brackett novel in which he has a rural community, an anti-technological community, uh, people who are essentially Mennonites have a better chance of surviving. And I realized the community that's presented in this show Revolution is essentially that community mm-hmm. without... The Mennonite overlay, um, and then the series gets more and more bizarre from there on. Um, but uh, and, and and I think it's, I think I think it's really a crypto right wing series. But I'll have to explain that uh, when somebody asks me about it. <laughs> so actually, yes, you're right. I mean, I I saw the the Paul Di Filippo review actually of um, the, the American science fiction novel set that you did for uh, Library of America. And since I suspect this could be finally 118 episodes into the Crude Street podcast, Gary, the Let's Promote Us podcast. It's about time. <laughs> it's about well, time, well, baby. First of all, so, I will say, yeah. go ahead. Finish I was just going to say, Paul did a lovely review of, of the box set on uh, uh, barnesandnoblereview.com at The mm-hmm. Speculator, uh, where he uh, said simply just beautiful things about the box set that you've worked on and i have to say my set my copy arrived this week oh it did excellent yes i i, I paid cash money for mine gary oh i'm sorry but that's okay no 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 it's fine yeah being being a gatekeeper and a a, a mullah I, I figured it was probably okay to actually pay for a set it's okay don't worry no. and i have to say beautiful a beautiful job 
You must I, be delighted. I am. I am absolutely delighted at the way it looks. I. Uh, I was shown the covers, uh, but I really wasn't given a veto power over them. Um, the one cover I don't like as well as the others, uh, uh, it's the, uh, and I'm blanking on the name of the artist, Ralph um, Brillhart, mm-hmm. which is the one, which is actually a cover from A Plague of Pythons that has a sort of alien face right in your face. Yeah. As it turned out, they all look great. Uh, and they, the other thing that struck me about them is that they, Growing up with especially the Richard Powers covers on cheap paperbacks, you realize that the paperbacks, these, all these great Ballantine paperbacks in the 50s didn't do justice to the artwork. No. I mean, it, it's really striking when it's reproduced in, 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 uh, in, in good, on good paper with, with good printing. Uh, but apart from that, what I liked about Paul's review is that he actually went through and read all the novels and commented on them, which is a lot of work. It is reading nine novels for one review. Uh, but I think he, he completely got what we were trying to do with that. Well, I mean, I don't think we've talked about I don't know how, in what detail we've talked about it, and I'm not going to go back and listen to 117 podcasts to check, but how many novels did you actually read for this? I have no idea. I absolutely couldn't begin to guess because uh, they, uh, the Library of America people had come up with a list from standard sources that looked at uh, award nominees and, and, and things listed in classic novels and that sort of thing. I went through my own chronologies, and there were some novels that I thought I probably don't need to reread. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I even took a look at They'd Rather Be Right. And it turns out, yes, that probably deserves its reputation as the <laughs> Hugo winning novel ever. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so yeah, were, can we just take a minute and feel a little bit bad for Mark Clifton? I mean, really. The poor guy. Yeah, he won a Hugo, and that's a great thing. But to be lambasted ever after as the author of the worst winner ever? Well, co-author. He, he, he wrote it with somebody, I think, named Frank Riley, who I really yeah. don't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, but Mark Clifton, as I recall, had written uh, some provocative stories with provocative titles. The one of which comes to mind was, I think, Sense from Thought Divide, uh-huh. which was kind of a classic at the time. So he was not a... Um, he, he was not a despised writer, and oh no, just, I don't mean that. But it's, it's just a, it's a pretty bad rap to carry, isn't it? Yeah, to have to have to deal with that, uh, I, I suppose it is. Um, so you know, but but, but that but, said, but, you, you read somewhere between nine and a thousand novels. I assume you read at least nine novels, Gary. I well, yeah, I read. I, I would say reading all the way through to make a decision, maybe twenty to thirty. Actually, actually, in fairness, did you reread these nine books? Only oh, yes. because I wouldn't have felt the need to reread The Stars of My Destination. I might have enjoyed it, but I wouldn't have felt the need. Well, I'm cheating here a little bit because I had to proofread all of them anyway. So. <laughs> okay, well. So, and, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, the, the, it, was, it was fairly clear early on that there were some things that... But even even there, uh, and we, we did have a discussion with, with Barry Malsberg. Yes, yes. About this. And he, he might have chosen The Demolished Man, and, and there was a decision to be made there. Yes, of course. Well, well, I mean, any act of editing is an act of making a choice, sure, you know, and we both know that. And this is, uh, I mean, this is an editorial anthologizing kind of thing that you've done, uh, you know, choosing the, the nine books. I mean, I realize there are rights issues, and I realize there's impact with the uh, publishing company you're dealing with and everything else. But at the end of the day, it's also a decision where you, as the editor of, of the set, go... You know, I'm not going to include X, but I will include Y. You know, that's true, and it's a decision that um, is well. 
you've made this decision a lot more often than I have, where you're 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 not rejecting something. You're not saying this is simply something I don't want. You're saying some, this is something I already have a novel which is a lot like this in the balance, um, and or we have a story which is too close to this, or I would do this in another set or whatever. Uh, I could, and I suppose most people who've read seriously in science fiction could put together a completely different set of nine novels um, and and have that perfectly be defensible as well. Uh, there were some things we were constrained by. I mean, the Library of America likes to get at least four novels in one of those volumes. Sure. And you know, means things like A Canticle for Leibowitz are not there. Um, yeah. Well, I have to say, uh, I mean, it, it crossed my mind because it crosses my mind for, about music all the time. Uh, and that is that it's great value for money. I mean, this is a pretty showy-looking box set. And I think it sells for like $70 in the States. It's something mm -hmm. like this, $70. So it's 1,700 pages of fiction, which is one George Martin novel, admittedly. Um, True. But it's nine novels for 70 bucks. That's that's not bad value. It's like eight, it's like paperback prices, like eight bucks. Well, it's discounted by the online retailers to $44, 45 $46. So yeah. it's, it becomes... Uh, very attractive, and I gather it's doing well. I believe the first uh, first printing is sold out, and uh, uh, we're getting still more coverage on it. Yep. And the the one thing which we talked about, and which you 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 expected as much as I did, it was it was a lot of second guessing. A lot of people saying you yeah. should have done this and you should have done that, which I I welcome because I would not argue for a moment that uh, a mirror for observers is an inferior novel. Yeah. Well, well, I think the great thing about that, the great thing about the discussion is it's a point where you take your gatekeeper hat off and you just have a discussion about the stuff you love and op open the door. I mean, if this has done very well, which it sounds like it has, hopefully, and this is, um, I guess, touched on in an interview that you've done on the Library of America website, it, yeah. it, it opens up the possibility of there being further such projects. And to open the gate wider to other things. And I believe that does, yes. Please go on. I like what you're saying. <laughs> and I, I guess what I'd touch, say is that, I mean, to me, I mean, first of all, you and I have had privately um, and off air mm -hmm. discussions about other things that could be done and some ideas. Uh, first of all, have you begun to think through what you might do next? I mean, obviously, this is just out. Presumably, if they've sold out the first printing, they're looking to go to a second printing because that's a very nice kind of thing to have happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I was also it also struck my mind as to whether they might actually do e-books of them because there are people out there who would like such things. And then you could add all of that wonderful extra content you put on the website into the e-books or as a consolidated e-book that could, you could get with it. Actually, that would be a great thing to do, Gary. Take all that digital oh. content, wrap it up into an ebook, and make it available when you purchase the box set. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Uh, yeah. Which is, keep in mind that I don't run the Library of oh, America. Yeah, oh, you will soon. You will soon. You've, you've just given them a hit. Anyway, hmm. I guess my question is... Yeah, well, yes, one thing, yep. that the idea of packaging, especially cl classic reprints, because uh, one, well, one of the questions I... Uh, have fielded more than once now is why isn't the foundation trilogy in there? And my my easy answer is that well those are 1940s stories they're not 1950s novels. Mm. My uh, more pragmatic answer is that I think Every Man's Library did a lovely edition of the foundation trilogy yes. with an introduction by Michael Durda, uh, so it's already available there. Yep. But what I like about this project is that the um, the online content is really integrated. I mean it really is part of this whole package, and you can get a pretty good sense of science fiction of the 50s. You can read the original short story uh, that uh, the short story "Who" by Aldous Budras, mm -hmm. which is 
actually that good, but it's fascinating to see how a not that good story can turn into what I think is a pretty good novel. Yeah. Only pretty good. I thought it was one of the best science fiction novels of the 50s, but Gary. I think it was. Uh, uh, and uh, so there were people who questioned that because it probably is, I would argue, it's probably the least well known novel in the set of yeah. nine novels. Well, I guess so, even though I confess, I'm not going to sort of stick my hand up and tell you which, but there's at least one of these books I've not read. Oh, good. You don't have to tell me which, because I would expect most people to have not read all of them. Um, and so that gave me an extra reason. I mean, obviously, well, not obviously, but I bought the set that Peter Straub edited a few years hmm. ago, which I thought were fanta was fantastic. Um, and obviously I was going to buy this, even though, you know, I know you. Um, yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> I would be glad to tell you the number of free copies I got. I'm going to guess somewhere around the number of the sort of, in addition to your own copies, probably none. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess really what I'm thinking is what's next in your mind? What's the next logical step? Now you must be beginning to think it through. I've not, I've not talked to uh, Max Rudin, who's the publisher of the library of America or Jeffrey O'Brien, who's the editor. Mm -hmm. I know that they've been interested in, um, obviously, the interest started with Philip K. Dick. It started of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. This. Uh, looking, there, there are two ways, I think. You can look backward. I mean, the, a collection of stories of the 40s, the 30s and 40s would be possible. Although, by and large, the Library of America doesn't like to do general short story anthologies. The mm -hmm. Peter Straub anthology was an exception. The most logical, other, the other two logical directions would be to look at novels of the 60s or 70s, yeah. uh, which would certainly help correct the gender imbalance in my uh, volumes. And the third thing would be to look at which, who, which authors, and probably not living authors because they tend not to do living authors, but which science fiction authors, American science fiction authors, are likely to get or deserve their own Library of America volumes. Yes. Uh, and I would guess that at the top of that list, almost inevitably, is Ray Bradbury. Um, yes, if they're, not, gonna, if, if they're gonna let that happen, that is, I guess is the thing. It's up to the Bradbury estate. Yeah, at this point. yeah, yeah. My second choice, I was, I was thinking about this while I was writing this, and my second choice at this point probably would be Joanna Russ. But that, wouldn't, isn't that really a collection of the 70s, though? No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about uh Okay, collection. sorry. Okay. I'm talking about single author collections. Sure. Uh, and the, the two mo two of the most prominent authors who have died within the last couple of years are Bradbury and Russ, and both of them have... Uh, plenty of material uh, for, for a Library of America volume. But yeah, in terms of doing novels of the 70s, you could go all, all the way through the 80s. I mean, you could certainly do... I think it becomes much more difficult for a couple of reasons. Yeah. One, that the novels get longer when you move out of the 50s. Um, and the other is that there are more of them. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and probably more of them that are of very high quality because uh, even though I would make an argument and do make the argument that the 50s was... A kind of golden age. It was the first golden age for novels. I don't know if I'd make the argument that the 50s as an age of novels was necessarily better than the 60s or the 80s. Do you think the 80s and the, the 60s and the 80s were better than the 70s? Um, I, no, I didn't mean to exclude the 70s. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to actually, I'm really not trying to trip you up. Uh, I'm just thinking about it you know, sort of the kind of things that you would put into such, you know, such sets. I mean, I mean, you're right about Russ. I could see a, a book uh, being done on Russ very much like the Shirley Jackson book they did. Exactly. Because none of Russ's novels were very long, and you could add a smattering of short fiction to uh, help, you know, round it out and define the book. And you could mm -hmm. have a really good book. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a book that needs to be available. You should do um, that book, Gary. Um, I, 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 well, as I say, this is a, this is an interesting organization. <laughs> they're, they're they're very they're they're very easy to work with. I should say that they're fun to work with. They every the people I was working with all read all the novels. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and especially this one researcher did enormous amounts of work in, in, in finding the correct editions, finding uh, publishing histories, and that sort of thing. Um, but essentially, there is a process that goes on uh, behind the scenes, or at least uh, um, behind anything I'm involved in, with that that has in mind the notion that this is a kind of canon formation. I don't. We've talked about this before. I don't like the idea of canon formation, and I certainly don't want to be accused of being one of the ones who forms a canon. But on the other hand, I can understand the argument that if you're putting together a classic. Uh, extensive series of books of American literature yeah. uh, that science fiction ought to be part of that and it ought to be part of that in more than two or three volumes, more than Philip K. Dick and sure, more than Sure, sure. I, I agree with you. I have to say what crossed my mind is you said that you're uncomfortable with canon formation mm. is are we on Crude Street and that means I guess just you and me, are we being disingenuous and naive when we deny that role because, I mean, let's face it, you've just edited American science fiction nine classic novels for the Library of America, Gary. That's a pretty solid shot over the bows of canon formation, whether you mean it to be so or not. It's a shot over the bows of American literature canon formation. My essential argument here is that there are a lot of science fiction novels that belong in the canon of American literary novels, period. Mm -hmm. This is a sampling of them from the 1950s. Um, and this is a sampling that covers a lot of different things. In other words, I, I, I would not claim that these are the nine best science fiction novels of the 1950s. They represent a lot of different things. We wanted different themes. We wanted uh, uh, d different um, approaches to science fiction, di different stylistic approaches. You get Sturgeon is a very different writer stylistically from Bester, for example. So you want to get a, a fairly decent picture. You want, you want things that reflect the 50s in some ways, that, fit, that, that depict American culture. Uh, I guess my question is, when you talk about a canon, what does that mean? Is it simply a qualitative judgment that this is the best novel of the year, as the Hugos claim to be? Or is it a judgment that, you know, looked at 20 or 30 or 40 years later, this novel seems to say a lot about American culture at that period? I don't know, is, is the truth. Um, you know, if you think about... The, the way ca canon is discussed, or canon formation is discussed, online at least, it's cast as a negative kind of a thing. It's cast as a reducing what's being looked at about keeping things out. I mean, that's the whole gatekeeping concept, isn't it, really? It's, not, it's about right. what gets let in and what gets kept out, and that ergo somebody somewhere gets to do the keeping in and the keeping out, yeah? That's and that, that, that's a very uncomfortable kind of an idea. Uh, it's naive not to... I mean, I've thought about this myself over the last weeks and months and whatever else. You know, I could sit there and I could list the things that I do and you could say, well, how can you argue that you're not part of this process? And I struggle to come up with an answer to that because after all, whilst I'm not constantly aware of it, whilst I'm not attempting to do it overtly, sure, I can see that there's some merit to that, 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 that approach. So I, I guess to sort of to circle around to your key question is, you know, what's the value of canon formation? What's the negative? I think 
if canon formation is done in as open a way as possible, in as inclusive a way as possible, uh, then I think what you get a chance is hopefully to come up with a historical picture of what's been of merit and of interest over time. Mm? Mm -hmm. And so your books for the Library of America as an act of canon formation, I think if you take them as an act of science fiction canon formation, you could sit there and say, well, you know, you got one woman in there, I think. And so that's not so terribly good, even whether or not it's indicative of the time. On the other hand, you could, if you look at the Library of America as a whole and similar broader literary canon formation, you know, canon forming procedures, uh, there's not been a lot of science fiction included in that really. So it, it restores some kind of balance in that context. Um, I think the problem that modern communication has brought to the whole canon formation argument isn't necessarily, in fact, isn't that more people have a say in it, because I think that's only a good thing. I think that it's expected to happen more quickly. You know, the, the life cycle for canon formation has been reduced arguably from decades to weeks. Um, you know, if Gardner Dozois' Year's Best Science Fiction is an act of canon formation, then his New Year's Best... Is, is, is forming canon as it goes, laying it back behind it like fresh tarmac. Mm-hmm. And it really, you, know, you don't know it that, that quickly. Uh, I would argue probably that, you know, the point at which stuff in Gardner's books becomes canon is 15 years ago or so, or 20 years ago. At that point, you can begin to look and you're looking mm-hmm. back from here. And, and, and oh, I, I agree. And I think Gardner recognized this when he did sure. the best, the best anthologies. Yeah. Um, he was trying to go back and, and, and look at those things. I, year by year, you can't form canons. I think, no. uh, in, in defense, um, in defense of the idea behind the Library of America, which is not a new idea, because the no. modern library back in the 1940s did the same thing. The Everman's Library in England did the same thing. That what this is not an act of deliberate canon formation so much as it's an act of canon recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other books, for example, that appeared about the same time as mine from the Library of America was Laura Ingalls Wilder. Uh, Wilder's Little House on the Prairie books. Yes. Uh, which which created, I'm sure, as much outrage among some traditionalists as, as having science fiction did. But the fact is, those books are now classics. They are part of the canon. They are reread by generations of people all over the world. Yep. Uh, and whether or not uh, somebody in the 1920s, and whenever these books came out, 1930s, 1940s, um, of course that wouldn't have been, you, you, couldn't, you could not have predicted that those books would become part of the canon. No, I don't think that I'd, I'd be very surprised if very many of the writers uh, that are in the uh, in, in the science fiction series would have thought that they were ever going to be memorialized in a classics of American literature volume. Um, God knows that people like Sturgeon desired that with every fiber of their being. He wrote about it over and over again. That he was a good writer. He wanted to be remembered. Whether he expected to be remembered, I don't know. So what we do, we can look back on the 50s and say, okay, these books are important for various reasons. I don't think you can look back on 2010 and necessarily say that yet. I I agree. I I find, I mean, people ask you these questions or you end up in a panel somewhere. What are the classics of the 2000s so far? And it's not that I can't think of books. And it's not that I can't think of an answer, answer to the question. It's that I feel that any answer is undercooked. There hasn't been enough time to know. I mean, will mm-hmm. I mean will uh, Accelerando by Charles Stross be read in 20 years' time? 
Will um, the Wind Up Girl by Paola Bacigalupi? Will um, Slow River by uh, Nicola Griffith? I don't mm-hmm. know yet. I, I, I don't think we can say. Um, certainly, there are books that have had a lot of prominence, and there are books such as Critical Darlings, and there are, you know we we can have you know different discussions around awards and all that kind of stuff, but we just don't know yet, and we yeah. shouldn't put too much weight on it yet. I mean, I think there are probably some books like uh, Stan Robinson's Mars Trilogy that most people accept are, if not definitive Martian novels, at least one of the major contributions to science fiction that deals with Mars. And Red Mars pop- is 20 years old, though, Gary. It's only what? Red Mars is 20 years old. Is that all it is? It's 92, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it but, seems... But, but, no, but what I mean, though, then, is it's at that cusp where you can begin to maybe make that assessment. Yeah, that's you know, okay. it's far enough back. Um, my guess is, if you went back to 1970, would anybody have named Cordwainer Smith as one of the enduring classics as part of the canon? Probably, because by then his, his writing was largely done. It was the you know because he'd started what in the mid 50s, late 50s, I think. He started in the late 50s and was publishing through the I think late 60s. But the point is, he was considered a kind of quirky author. I, I there was a point in. I mean, I, I was not around to uh, read the earliest Cordwainer Smith stories that Fred Pohl and others bought, but I was I was old enough to remember that there was a point in time in which um, Cordwainer Smith was thought of in terms not unlike the terms that, let's say, David Marasek has thought yeah. of. Into- True. I mean, and, but it's in- interesting as well, though, and we've had this discussion and we've gone through the, ex- uh, the exercise before as well, so I'm not going to repeat it too much. But, I mean, you mentioned 1970. You go, you go back to the 1970 Hugo ballot, and you can pick out what made it into the canon and what didn't. Yeah. Just looking down the list of names. Um, and I think, you know, if you, go, if you leap 20 years ahead to 1990, you can almost do the same thing. I mean, the five Hugo novels were Hyperion by Simmons, Boat of a Million Years by Anderson, Fire in the Sun by Effinger, Grass by Tepper, Prentice Alvin by Scott Card. Well, arguably, Hyperion has become canonical. Mm-hmm. Boat of a Million Years didn't, Fire and the Sun didn't, Prentice Alvin didn't, Grass on the cusp. Yeah. You know, but jump another 20 years ahead to the year before last, The City and the City, I don't know, I wouldn't say, The Wind-Up Girl, maybe, Bone Shaker by Sherry, Sherry Priest, I doubt it, Julian Comstock by uh, Robert Charles Wilson, I doubt it, Palimpsest mm-hmm. by Catherine M. Valenti, I doubt it. I think she will produce something that will be canon, probably. She's very, very good, but I don't think that will. And WWW Wake by Bob Sawyer. And you're going, yeah, I don't think so either. So, but, but then what happens is in 2030, if, when I would be uh, 69 and you would be a billion, we could, and we did this again, you might look back and say, well, of course Bone Shaker was going to be canonical. Everyone can see that in retrospect for these reasons. So... Yeah, it, it's just not enough time. I think, yeah, I think the same thing is true with writers. I mean, there are there are novels, there are novels and stories which become canonical partly because the writers have become major writers uh, in the field. I mean, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm one of the things I'm reading now is the selected stories of Ursula K. Le Guin, which she selected herself for a collection from Small Bear Press. The second volume is the volume that everybody will recognize. It's mostly science fiction stories, and I'm thinking canonical, 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 canonical. Okay, these are. These are <laughs> That sounds like a really bad rap song, Gary. Go well, on. I know it does. Anyway, yeah. yes, yep, yep. 
Okay, we can we can record this later. We can perform this at World Fantasy if you'd like. Oh. Okay, let's do okay. that. I wonder if we could get um, John and Nilio to help us with the music, and then we'll be away. We'll be all right, absolutely. Um, but some of the stories, some of the stories are canonical, to be honest, because they're Ursula K. Le Guin stories. Yes. We pay attention to her. We pay attention to writers who are significant writers, and in some cases, um, you mentioned one of the nominees, for example, being Sherry S. Tepper. Yes. Uh, who's a very important writer, but which one of her novels would you pick out to be canonical, or would you pick her career to be a sort of canonical? She was one of the most important feminist writers, or eco-feminist writers, if you want to use a term that was popular a few years ago, ever to, ever, ever to come along in this genre. I actually would pick Grass. Uh, well, that's a fairly early novel. Is it? It's like 1990 or so. She's been writing for a chunk of time by then, Gary. I know, but she's written a lot of uh, the, the, the more ambitious, uh, uh, I, I would say, more rhetorical novels have come since then. Oh, dude, are we going to disagree about Sherry Tepper? Let's disagree about Sherry Tepper. Well, Grass is probably, uh, I, I would argue, maybe her best novel. Yeah, I think it is too. I also think it's at right about the time when her career ended. Oh, no, it's not. You mean where her career ended as an innovative, uh, cutting-edge novelist? As somebody could bear, bear to read, for crying out loud. I mean, oh, okay, I'm going to get lambasted, so I better be very careful here. Um, okay. I think Tepper's a terrific writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she, she's, what, 84 years old now? Uh, really? and she, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's been writing certainly since the early to mid-1980s. She started her career writing uh, a, a series called the True Game series, right. which, which ultimately extended to nine novels, uh, very good fantasy novels, uh, a, yeah. a trilogy of Marianne books. I'm, I don't just feel warmly about them because it's my wife. Uh, she has that name. But the, the Awakener series, a bunch of others. And then in, in uh, 1989 came Grass, which one of the Hugo, which was the first of the Marjorie West writing books, right? Now... Uh, just before that, she wrote The Gate to Women's Country, which is a good book, but in my opinion, not a great book because it's overwhelmed by its polemics. And it, I believe it came out the same year as Pamela Sargent's The Shore of Women, which was a much stronger book in a similar vein. Right. There were similar novels that came out at the, around that time, Susie Charnas's uh, series. So, yeah. so in, in some ways, it's an important it's, it's one of the important works in the history of feminist science fiction. Yeah. I think there's no doubt about but, that. But, but she puts out this big, substantial, fascinating book in Grass. And honestly, if you've not read Grass by Sherry S. Tepper, it is in print. It is part of the SF Masterworks. Uh, you should go and read it. It's a very, very good book. And she follows it with a couple of good, interesting books, but not greatly interesting books to my, to my way. And Beauty was interesting. Uh, Raising the Stones, the next of the West Riding books was good. But to my reading, somewhere around mm, probably the, the third and final one, Sideshow, the polemics in her fiction overtook the fiction. Up until that point, the, the literary qualities of the books overwhelmed, didn't overwhelm, but they, they balanced what she was talking about. And then she began to descend into writing books of rhetoric, which were much, much, much less interesting to read. Plague of Angels, Gibbon's Decline and Fall, Six Moon Dance, The Fresco. And now I've not read... Uh, the Margarets or The Waters Rising, but I read a lot of those books, and they really did lose a lot of their interest, you know, to me at least. I may be a, a non-ideal reader. Well, I, I, uh, I liked. Uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think uh, I think she did very interesting things with the idea of 
of different kinds of fantastic narrative in both beauty and in a plague of angels. And if I'm remembering yeah. plague of angels correctly, that's the one in which people live in archetypal villages and take on sure. sort of tale roles with themselves. Um, I remember reading, I remember talking to her, I only met her once uh, and she was absolutely delightful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she told me at the time, and she also told uh, Charles Brown in a locus interview that that her rhetoric, her polemics, are really what's behind her novels. She wants to get her message out. She can't, she said to me, she can't write a novel any other way. Yeah. And I, I respect that. I think that in, in the long run, it led to some of her novels seeming repetitive. I mean, some of her novels dealt with uh, animal rights, which is an important issue. Um, but it dealt with those rights in exactly the same way that her previous novel had dealt with uh, sure. rights various kinds of disinfectant. So I think, right, I, th I think that's correct. On the other hand, I think there's a role for a polemical novelist. Uh, yeah. I don't think that very many of these novels are going to be remembered as classics of science fiction. You don't hear them talked about much anymore. I think you do hear about grass, and you do hear about a plague of angels. You don't really hear much about, what, the Margarets or... Um, no, no, I mean, okay, if you said to me, how, you know, where would you say the heart of what you'll be remembered for lies... I think she'll be remembered for two things in terms of her bibliography outstandingly. Grass, which I think will stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. It may stand the test of time in the way that The Long Tomorrow by Lee Brackett has, but I think it'll stand the test of time. I think you're right. Um, and I think the True Game books will stand the test of time. I think she was a really innovative fantasist. I think the books were t are terrific. Um, and I think they will continue to be read as well. And I think she she belongs in our canon. I think after sort of after thirty years or forty years write, writing you know, fiction for us, she really does. Uh, and and I've, look, I've got sympathy for the polemicist. You know, uh, I think we've talked about Stan Robinson being susceptible to some of this as well, and being quite unapologetic about things like the volume of um, what we would call info dump in some of his his texts and everything, and that he has a mission when he's writing. I just think that over time the balance slipped with her, um, and other readers may completely disagree. And I, I'm happy to entertain that discussion and to um, be disagreed with. And ultimately, you know, I'm not trying to sort of I have to, I'm, like I want to step back from my own comments a little in the sense that I'm not trying to say Sherry Tep Tepper will or won't be allowed in, or I, I would or wouldn't. I'm one reader. Um, I think there, yeah, I, I think there are different. There are obviously different takes on it, and the only this, this goes back to the point of where canon formation really comes down to what people are reading fifty or sixty years later. Uh, I would put, I mean, if I were writing a literary history of, of this period, I might put a few more words in favor of a plague of angels than you have, because I think yeah. it's not a, not only deals with the same gender issues that Tipper has has very well dealt with throughout her career, but it deals with genre issues it plays with the interplay between fantasy and science fiction which in the years since that novel came out has become much more of a of a kind of discussion going on in the in the field so i think that that's plague of angels is I, i'm not mistaken almost 20 years old it would um, be yes it would be and, and the same thing with stan robinson i think stan robinson is very very good at including philosophical arguments in his fiction and he's a very very good defender of the notion of including philosophy, he's a defender of not only the info dump, but of the philosophical dialogue. Yes. Which appears in the, largely in the middle volume of the Mars trilogy and occupies really almost the whole of the uh, Science and the Capital trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Mars trilogy works better because there's more science fiction in it, frankly. 
<laughs> well, at least for us. I mean, we have to allow that as well. It works better for us. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, I'm just to say, whilst whilst we've been talking, I I can't help it. I've gone onto 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 the internet, which is right in front of me, uh, and I am bemused by what writers do. She's currently working on a new book, Sherry Tepper, oh. which is a sequel to the True Game books, Plague of Angels, and The Waters Rising. A sequel to all of those in one book? I believe so. A book called Fish Tales. It could be absolutely fascinating. I'll check it out. I'm intrigued. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, that I think uh, Americans can look forward to next spring, which we've talked about before, is is M. John Harrison's Empty Space, which is a se- which is a sequel to both Nova Swing and Light, even though Nova Swing isn't really a sequel to Light. So it's like a novel which is yeah. a sequel to two separate previously independent novels, and I guess you can do that. You can, you can. Just as a quick aside, to find out about Sherry Tepper, go to sherry-s-tepper.com. And now a question for you, Gary. Mm-hmm. Is Empty Light going to become our new Among Others? Empty Space, you mean? No, oh, sorry, Empty Space, yeah. Not Empty Light, that would be Light. Uh, empty empty light Space. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be very interesting what happens with Among Others. Among Others was handled very well in the States by Tor, I believe. Yes, yes, it was. And the question is really going to be whether Nightshade can do as good No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. I don't mean there. I don't, don't mean everybody else is Among Others. Gary, Among Others, which we read in probably December or November of 2010, right. and which came out in January of 2011, became the book that we talked about all year long as being the example of a terrific book. And it's now collected the British Fantasy Award. I believe, it did just right? yes, just the other week, and does stand to you know to be to be the first work ever to win the Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Award if, um, if, if it's successful in Toronto. Or doing too, isn't it? In about twelve minutes' time, when Toronto's on. Ah, um, so is is Empty Space going to be our book of the year? Empty Space is certainly one of my books of the year, and I'm a I'm a huge admirer of Mike Harrison. And uh, when we were talking with Paul Kincaid about what science fiction is doing that's new and interesting within the con- within the framework that it's established, uh, it was the best example he could think of. It was the best example I could think of. Mm-hmm. I think it's accessible. It's funny. It's humane. It's uh, it's a mainstream novel uh, within the context of a space opera. Uh, the two novels go par- parallel. And I, I think I may have said this on the podcast before, but if not, if if, if so, I'll repeat myself. That, that he's doing in one novel here what Ian Banks does in his two separate careers. <laughs> he's it's totally a, your man crush. Okay, well, no, it's a it's either a terrific crush. It's, it's, it's a terrific mainstream novel. It's a terrific near-future mainstream novel about a character named Anna, who I might have a crush on also. That's fine. Um, but it's also a terrific space opera that's a genuine sequel to life. Okay, so it, it's probably going to be our book of the year then let me let me let me let me change the subject as long as we're talking about canon formation <laughs> and congratulate you on the first issue the first edition the first whatever you call it of eclipse online the launch yes the the, the long the long uh awaited launch of eclipse online thank you very much it's I was been going to say long gestating launch but it's <laughs> um and it's and your editorial was very uh intelligent and i thought humane and the question i have is this um and and the christopher rose story which is out there it's available 
to everybody now for free. Um, <laughs> it's a terrific story. And I want to talk about Chris Rowe in a minute. I want to talk about the whole notion of agricultural science fiction, which is kind of a specialized area. But I know that you've assembled a group of fascinating and interesting and terrific stories uh, for Eclipse Online. But one of the things you can't do when you're putting together an Eclipse as a physical book is you can't tell us which order to read the stories in. True. Now you, now you have to make a decision that of the stories which you have, the one you wanted us to start out with was this Christopher Rose story. That's true. That's very true. I mean, uh, how do I put this? Okay. It's been a very interesting experience transitioning from Eclipse the Anthology series to Eclipse Online. It's been interesting because it's made me rethink again what Eclipse is and was. Um, each volume of Eclipse was very much a coherent single thing. It had particular people asked to be involved in it. Because it had a particular slant, I would even go to the, so far as to say I asked people to write a particular way at times for it. And I came out of Eclipse 4 really just looking to find my feet for Eclipse 5. And I went out and I commissioned a group of stories. And then I found out that there wouldn't be an Eclipse 5. And for a little while I thought it was, there was going to be nothing at all. And then we realized no Eclipse Online would happen. And one of the really positive things about Eclipse Online happening, from the publisher's point of view, I think it was there was a, a feeling that it would reach even more readers, which I think is a terrific thing. From my perspective, it also doubled the amount of fiction that it, would, that it could publish because mm -hmm. it went from publishing 12 or 14 stories per volume once a year to publishing two dozen stories a year, which is quite a significant increase from my perspective. Um, but it made me start to think – first of all, I, I mean I had stories on hand for Eclipse on uh, 5, one of yeah. which I lost ultimately. And I'm quite happy to say in, in public that originally I had acquired In Autotelia by M. John Harrison for Eclipse Online, and it was to have been the debut launch story originally. But, well, it was, it was supposed to be part of the book along with some other people. And then when we when Eclipse 5 was uh, cancelled, that story went on to ARC, and is a terrific story. I'm very happy to see it out in the world. But I had this group of stories that I was building up for Eclipse Online, and I was reading through, and there's a, lot, there's a whole group of them that I'm very happy with. There's particularly the first five stories, um, mm -hmm. I'm very, I mean, I think Chris Rose's story is very strong. The story from KJ Parker that's coming out uh, in a week or so is also very strong. Quite a different balance when it comes to the, the October stories, which aren't out yet. Uh, uh, was it? Uh, Home Sherlock, a Warhouse mystery by Eleanor Arneson, a very underrated um, science fiction writer. And also um, a very good story by Nina Creek Hoffman called Firebugs. Um I think the reason that I picked the Chris Rowe is it's really sharp. It's really perceptive. It's mm -hmm. really beautifully written in many ways. And I think it sits at this, this sort of non-technical science fiction position in the spot. It's not a techie science fiction story. No, it's very long. It's a very uh, descendant of Cliff Simak, Simak kind of story. That it lives in that kind of space as Cliff Simak, I think, a little bit. Um, and I felt that it, it, it set the ground rules for, for it. And what's been really interesting for me after it's come out, and it's been very well received so far, which I'm very happy about because uh, Chris is a terrific writer. His 
uh, I think it was, it was A Voluntary State of his, which came out some years ago. It was a fantastic story, and everybody was looking for this flood of work to follow it, and it didn't quite for a variety of reasons. I think he's just naturally a very careful and slow writer. Um, so it was The Map is Not... What was The Map is Not... What's the title of that story? The Map is Not the Territory, or The Map is... Another word for map is... Yes. Okay. Yeah, that one. I, uh, I that one. Know. But uh, I, I can tell you, but I, I, should, I should... How do I not, not know that off the top of my head? Um, another word for map is faith. Faith. Which, which okay. is... Uh, actually, I, I suspect is a basis for the novel that he's working on, Sarah Across America. It's a fascinating concept. It's a fascinating... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... And I love this. I love this story. But what it made me do, uh, and it's been quite influ- uh, a very significant influence on my thinking about Eclipse um, is, over the past month or two, is I've had subsequent stories come in, and I've suddenly found myself for the first time really thinking, that's not an Eclipse story. I mean, I've read a couple of good stories that I've passed on because they just weren't Eclipse stories. And I still don't quite know what an Eclipse story is, but I suddenly find that, or at least I don't know how to um, state that overtly to somebody yet. But I find that increasingly there's what I want on Eclipse Online, and I kind of feel like it's going to take 12 months to get to the point where it's really firing exactly the way I want it to fire. I'm getting the stories in and everything. This has all been done on a shoestring and on a tightrope, so... um, I understand that, but you've been doing Eclipse for five years now. I mean, this is not a new experience for you to know what is and isn't an Eclipse story. Well, maybe I'm just the least perceptive person in science fiction, Gary, and I'd certainly put my hand up for that, But or the least self-aware. But uh, it's different, because... an Eclipse 3 story would prove to be different to an Eclipse 4 story for me. Uh-huh. An Eclipse 2 story was distinctly different from an Eclipse story, Eclipse 3 story in many ways. Uh, and the stories were they, were... they were set in the context of these other stories in the book. And that influenced how readers read them, how I read them, how I felt about right. them. I was looking for a kind of balance. Now I feel like I need balance every week, or every fortnight. Stories come out once every two, once every two weeks... And each story has to completely represent Eclipse now. It is its own whole. It's not part of this, that part of a, uh, a whole. I mean, ultimately, there may well be an annual book that will collect some of the stories, and I think that's possible. Uh, and then that might give you a perspective looking back. I mean, if there's an Eclipse 5 2012 stories or something, and it collects 12 or 14 or 16 of the 24 stories that come out, then that might put them in a kind of context and you'd look at them together. But right now, for example, there is only one Eclipse Online story. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this month, there will only be two. And you'll read them distinctly, clearly, one at a time. They're, they get a lot of air around them, which I think is great. Well, that's what I mean about the, uh, about the fact that you are now telling us, in some way, the order in which you want to read the stories. When you yeah. put out an Eclipse book, there's always the sense with any anthology, and, and there may be people out there who read anthologies from page one to in, in, in the book. I'm not one of them. I'm one of the people who will read the first sentence of a story and it doesn't grab me, I'll go on to the next one and I'll read them in whatever order it grabs me. Now you're giving us no choice. Now you're saying the Christopher Rose story is the first story we will read in, in the new Eclipse and something else will be the second story but we basically don't have the option of getting bored with this first story which by the way I should say is not boring at all. It's, it's very <laughs> ingratiating. Well I mean, I, I guess I mean that that's all true. Um, it's, it's also the nature of the beast. It's 
Well, okay, it's not really, is it? I was going to say, it, it, it was an approach that was put to me as the, as, as the way we'd go, and I think it's got its advantages. And the advantage is that you focus on one story. Yes, I am having to think about it. Yeah, I mean, just this, I mean, this opening month, which I think is very, very strong, um, I went back and forth with the publisher about whether we were going to run the K.J. Parker story first, whether we would run this story first, which one seemed the best one uh, to lead with. And I'll be very curious to hear what you end up thinking of the second story when it comes out, uh, One Room and Everywhere. But, yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it, it's leading people through. You're right. And well, I mean, I think that's fine. I think, but but that to some extent is is a different kind of role for an editor than you've ever had before. It is, and, and it's an exciting one. And it's interesting because it's not quite morphed to exactly what I wanted it to be. It's a compromise with the publisher, and one I'm happy to have made. I was really initially what I wanted to do is I wanted to do a real monthly magazine. Uh-huh. I wanted to release on the first day of the month. The stories and the fiction, sorry, the, the fiction and maybe some non-fiction and whatever else. And the publisher was very clear that they liked a more integrated approach, where Clips Online was part of a greater whole in in the Nightshade Books website. And I completely mm. understand it. I mean, uh, Eclipse Online, Eclipse would not exist without Nightshade, as you know, and without Jason yeah. Williams and Jeremy Lassen uh, and uh, Ross there. Now, Eclipse Online is even more integrated with Nightshade Books. It's, it is a feature of their website. It is their featured fiction, much in the way the only analogous situation I can think of is a, a subterranean run, uh, subterranean online slash subterranean yes, magazine as part of subterranean books website. So it, that, that is its corollary. Uh, I don't know how much it will mirror the books that Nightshade publish though there are some writers there that I'd be very, very eager to feature ultimately, particularly Greg Egan. Mm-hmm. And, and hello out there to Greg if you're listening. Um, but it, 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 it will be its own, its, its own thing as well. Um, and it's, it's interesting to give it character as well. I mean, one of the things that was only decided very late in the day was that we would add artwork. Originally, it was going to be just the story itself. And then I began to feel like, I mean, there are other things I want to do. I have other ideas for growing Eclipse Online that I've not discussed with the publisher, so they're just really my notions uh-huh. that, that have to do with uh, adding ebook versions of things, audio versions of things, uh, supplementing different kinds of fiction, all this kind of thing. And maybe over time, if it's successful, it will be. But doing this kind of thing is successful and it's being, is, is expensive. And so really, it's, you know, it's something that will have to grow bit by bit over time. Um, but adding the artwork by Kathleen Jennings, who I hope at least for the first year will illustrate all the stories, gives it a much more character, I think, and gives it much more appeal and is a terrific thing to have done. I'm very, very pleased and happy and proud that she was willing to do the work and do it on a very tight turnaround. She's currently doing four new pieces of artwork for four stories, even as we speak, that have to be done before World Fantasy. Hello, Kathleen. Oh. It's, uh, it is terrific artwork, I will say that. And I, and, I, and I should say also, I think the Chris Rose story is terrific. Um, and interesting because because of some of the reasons you've mentioned, it, it is uh, because we've been talking about people like Sherry Tepper and we've been talking about people like Lee Brackett. Mm. There is a kind of uh, rural, small town, um, I don't know, agricultural science fiction, which is very a very rare but very consistent theme in science fiction. Um, and the Chris Rose story very much touches upon this. It touches upon horse racing. It touches upon agriculture. 
mm-hmm. touches on themes that we don't normally think of as science fiction themes. It does indeed. It's all about the small scale surviving the apocalypse. You yeah. Know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and all of the, these stories, all of the agricultural stories that I can think of off the top of my head, tend to be in that vein because I guess it gives you some kind of reason maybe to move beyond the ebb and flow of urban culture and look at the importance of uh, rural culture. Well, I don't I, know what's going to be a good thing. No, I, I, it's a fascinating, it's a theme that fascinates me, uh, particularly in terms of the Chris Rose story, because my dad was a feed salesman for okay. a farm, farm cooperative in Missouri. Okay. Uh, so I, I understand kind of the world that he's talking about here, and it's, it's a world which he's written about in other stories as well, including uh, you know, the, another word for map is faith. But there is a sense in which, okay, this is arguably one of the most crucial scientific problems of the near future is agriculture. Um, certainly Paolo Bacicalupi dealt with that essentially in The Calorie Man in his earlier stories. Um, and you're right, it goes back to... Um, some stories like Lee Brackett. It yep. goes back a little bit. There's some some acknowledgement of agriculture in stories like, um, oh, I don't know, um, Asimov's um, um, The Naked Sun or even Bob Silverberg's The World Inside. Sure. But those all deal with the notion that agriculture will somehow be able to feed a population of 20 billion or 30 billion or 40 billion people or whatever it is. The thing that struck me about the Chris Rose story is it's it's a ground level story. It deals with the actual problems of somebody trying to uh, trying to breed crops in a uh, in an environment such as the one described. Yes. Yeah. While you're talking, thinking, are we about to coin farm punk? And then I thought, no, because farm punk. Yes. Okay. No, you oh. can't have farm punk. Do you know why? No, do do it. I mean, everybody who's listening to this, make a meme out of farm punk. It's due. <laughs> way, way past due. Or agri punk. The only, pro- the only problem with farm punk slash agri punk is there's nothing punk about it, is there? It's the it's antithesis sort of, of punk. It's sort of the antithesis of punk culturally. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I was thinking. I, I wonder if the reason it's not more common is it's not in immediately sexy. It's not immediately sexy, and it's also something which is completely outside of the experience of most modern readers. One of the things I was thinking about uh, when I was looking at Lee Brackett's The Long Tomorrow for this is. When she was writing that in 1955 or 56, a large chunk of America had a notion of what farming life was like. Yes. I don't think that's true anymore. Well, that, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and I think it's a romanticized view. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know to what extent, I really don't know to what extent there's still some something romantic about uh, this story. Actually, for some reason, the other story that you made me think of, and I'm sure you've not read it. Uh, have you read a story called Wives by Paul Haynes? I don't know it. It's a really horrific, disturbing science fiction novella that Paul wrote and was published in X6, the anthology that that also featured Margot Lanigan's Sea Hearts novella. That's why I know about it. Yes, I did see that anthology. And it ties in uh, largely because actually it it shares that rural setting. Uh, It's it's an Australian rural setting, so it's completely Mm. antithetical to, to what Chris has done in his story. But it has that same focus. It's brutal and it's horrible, uh, but it, it 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 carries that same kind of interest. You sort of, you know, I, I think there's something where if you're in a, a rural setting, an urbanized setting, sorry, that just contradicted myself. If you're in an urbanized setting, you're you're slightly fascinated about these things. Well, and you should be fascinated. Like, you absolutely should be fascinated about these things because one of the things that 
that comes up again and again in post-apocalyptic narratives. It comes up in everything from the Hunger Games to the TV series The Walking Dead is how are these people being fed? How is yes. agriculture working? How is food delivery working? How is the whole sort of sustenance economy uh, work in these things? And you buy, Basically, these questions are never addressed. It's and yet they are arguably the most crucial questions to be asked about a post-apocalyptic future. Indeed. Where do we get food? Well, maybe we need more of it. You know what we don't need more of, Gary? What do we not, what do we not need more of? <laughs> the Good Street Podcast. We're all to the I end of our hour. We rambled our way through it. We rambled sat down. You were fresh out of hospital. We didn't know what we were going to talk about. And I mean, we should tell, uh, tell our listeners that Gary is in good health, but was in the hospital I'm in, I'm last couple health. of days. I spent, I, yeah, I spent two days in the hospital, uh, mostly waiting for the results of tests. And Which I'm were all fine. clear, and so we're all happy about that. Yeah. Um, and I, I was going to briefly discuss my best of the year, which I'm slaving away on even as we speak. Uh, I've already contracted the first 10 stories of the ultimately 30-odd that I'm going to contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, got those to do. But I guess the, the thing I, w- I would close up with uh, on this, the 118th or even maybe 119th, if my count is off, uh, podcast, is uh, we're all going to Toronto, Gary. We will be having fun in Toronto. I just received in the email today a schedule of what I'm supposed to do there. Yep. I presume you did too. I did. I preempted them, Gary. I, I think it was the right thing to do. And it's actually 119 because, of course, Kids' podcast was 118. Oh, yes, right. Uh, so... I preempted um, Barbara Roden and the programming team a little bit, and so kept my commitments down to just one program item. When we'll be on the same program, I presume, which is it, the it, it, it will be you and I, my friend, along with some other folk. Oh, um, excellent folk! Yeah, they are indeed excellent folk. All, all well, I was going to say all good friends of ours, but I think actually um, that's not true. Um, there are several good friends of ours and some other people who I don't know very well. But there, uh, there are no active enemies of ours. Well, there's you. Oh, Gary, you drew the short straw. <laughs> oh. Because you're the Toastmaster, Gary. Okay, let me tell you. If you come to the Vaughan Room at the Sheraton Richmond Hill in Toronto on Saturday, the November, November the 3rd, on at 4 p.m., there will be a panel called Speaking of the Year's Best, where the panel discuss what they feel are the most notable, no, no, notable works to emerge in 2012. Though mm-hmm. I have to say, the most notable works of fantasy, Gary, so you can't talk about Empty Light. Uh, and Empty Space! I know, I Empty know, I couldn't resist I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to tell Mike Harrison he needs to write a novel called Empty Light now. Yeah, because but that didn't work with Gene Wolfe and his story, did it? No, it didn't. But no, I'm still working on it. Oh, you keep, well, you keep working on him. I'll, I'll publish it. No, this uh, was a joke. For, for people who don't listen to our podcasts, we spent some time talking about the fact that Gene Wolfe's novel, Home Fires, is mispronounced by many people, including people at the tour offices, I later found out, as home fries. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. What I was going to, actually, I, I have to retract something I said. This panel is all either good friends or dear friends, and by the, that I mean people who are we're very close to or are in the process of becoming very good friends with. Mm-hmm. There's you, the moderator. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. Ellen Datlow, who is known and dear to us. There is Joe Fletcher, who I know a little bit, but seems really, really lovely, and you probably know better than I do. I only know slightly better than you do. Possibly. And who is the head of the Joe Fletcher imprint, uh, and also who uh, worked for Golans for a long time. Uh, there, uh, there, there's Paula Garan, who's a, a friend and who was a my fellow judge for the World Fantasy Awards back in 2002. Mm-hmm. And there's our dear friend and 
publisher and editor Liza Grantrombi. So there's there's the six of us. That's quite a gang. I think it's quite a gang, and I think everybody should make their way to suburban Toronto um, at the end of this. Is, this we podcast, October, yes. At the end of this podcast, they should end go. This podcast, what? absolutely. Yeah. And they'll be in there, and the podcast will. Apparently, this is going to run for an hour and a half, Gary. The panel is. Yeah, that's what they said. Oh well, we'll figure out a way to make an hour and a half. It's out of Saturday. Life. We'll have dinner. Uh, it's Saturday. It's just the last panel before people go out to dinner before the mass autographing session. Have we made all our dinner plans yet? Let's talk about that after the podcast. Because I think I'm free on Friday. You know. Friday. Know. Okay, that sounds good. Friday, and and then then Sunday. Friday and Sunday. Um. So yes. Hopefully everybody out there who's going to Toronto, please join us. Um, will come to our panel. So they'll they'll be there at the opening ceremony, Gary. <gasps> I will be at the opening ceremony. I discovered that today. So come to the opening ceremony and we will open things. You are going to totally trash my uh, my my uh, record, aren't you? Yeah, pretty much. Because if I recall correctly, I don't go to these things, Gary. I do not go to opening ceremonies. You have to go to the opening oh. ceremony, Jonathan. You have to go to the opening ceremony, Jonathan. This is this is an issue. You're a cold bastard, Gary. I know I am. <laughs> Can't I just go? No, okay, I'll come to the, I'll come to your opening ceremony. Oh. Do I have to come to your closing ceremony too, Gary? I don't. No. I, oh well, actually, the closing ceremony tends to be like tied up in the in the banquet. Uh, no, the closing ceremony is the date. Uh, is is like an hour after the banquet, I think. It's not even on the program. Oh, it is. It's on my, it's on my program. I it's have to be on, there. For I'm looking at it. It's not on the program. Oh, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. It's not. Goes. I have to look. Sorry, everybody. Smart. This isn't very good. Good uh, podcasting. At twelve fifteen, there's the World Fantasy Awards banquet, where I will be sitting with some very lovely people and dear friends, but not Gary because you know he's too good for. I don't us know now. where I'm sitting then. I've not been told any of this stuff. Well, um, I, I booked up a table on the assumption that you're not available. No. Otherwise, I'd have had you and Stacy. I should have had Stacy and just left you to yourself. Um, and then there's the judges panel after that, and that's it. That's all it says on the on the program. Okay, I didn't uh, I didn't put it in my smartphone after all. So it doesn't matter. We're we're, we're babbling. The main thing is we're we're going to be there. We may or we may not. Great time, and we will be doing some podcasts while we're there. Lots of one form or another. Millions of podcasts, or at least two or three. Um, and we might even we don't know, but probably not. But maybe do a live podcast. We'll see what happens. Okay. Until that time, this is the rambling mess that is the Cood Street podcast, slowly shambling towards Toronto. I thought we were extremely coherent and focused. Thank you very much. You always say that. I know that. I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.